Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. Three years have passed now since Elijah showed up out of nowhere with a word from the Lord for Ahab. As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Those were fighting words. With those words, Elijah was declaring the beginning of a God war. And now after a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the surface of the land. And so Elijah went. This will be the culmination of the God war. But there's a lot that is happening before we actually get to that point where God sends rain. And a lot that has actually happened in the three years between Isaiah or Elijah's first appearance before Ahab and his second one. During these three years, people weren't just sitting around waiting for rain. Elijah had been in hiding. God had been providing. A widow had come to faith. Baal was nowhere to be seen. It was evident that even in his backyard, he was impotent. Ahab's household was now in critical condition. Prophets were hiding, and others had been butchered. The one thing that was consistent during this three years, though, was that there was no rain. And clearly, God was responsible for this. For on display before all the people to see was the sovereignty of God. There had been no rain at his word, and it would only come again at his command. But before the rains come, there's a story that needs to be told. There's a few things that are interjected between the day God says, I will send rain, and the moment that God actually sends rain. And I think sometimes the best way to end a drought is to completely discredit Baal, and to leave no room in anyone's mind who actually is in control of the rain, and who we should worship. And so next week, we will see that this contest reaches its climax on the top of Mount Carmel. But in the meantime, we hear these words, it's going to rain, but not just yet. Elijah had received two words from God. I'm fascinated by it. And the first one is simply, go and show your, or go and hide. And so Elijah trundles off and he goes and hides for three years. Now God comes to him with a new word. He says, go show yourself. Which of these two commands do you think would have been the easiest for Ahab to obey? I know which one I would choose every time. I'm not sure um, if Elijah knew what was coming over the next few hours in his life. I think he was probably a little bit skittish though. Because you don't take evil on and not sweat a little bit. We see, in fact, what our Lord faced when he was just before the cross in the garden as he confronted evil in its most extreme form and it said he sweat drops of blood. Elijah must have had some news about Ahab's national search for him. He must have had some reports of how Jezebel had ordered the butchering of so many of God's prophets. He certainly knew that uh, people were suffering the effects of the drought that had come at the word of God spoken through him. And to be sure, these things had come because of the word of God. But Elijah had been the spokesman for God and therefore people's wrath was directed towards Elijah primarily and to God secondarily. Ahab was raging and everyone knew it. 
And God says to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab. We begin to see here how Elijah stands amongst many of God's servants. He was one who would not conform to the standards or the ways of this world. He's like Moses who went and stood before Pharaoh. He's like David who went and stood before Goliath. He's like Esther who went and stood before the king. And just so we get a picture of how bad things really were during these days, it says there, the author makes it very clear, the famine was very severe. That's an important note there. What he's saying is things were really, really, really bad. It's a way of saying it was strong. It's the precise phrase that is used to describe the famine which pushed Joseph's brothers to leave Canaan and go to Egypt in search of food. It's the very same word that was used just in chapter 17 to describe the illness of the widow's son which led to his death. It was a severe illness. What the author is telling us is people's lives are in jeopardy because of this particular famine. And so as far as Samaria was concerned, it couldn't rain soon enough. And in spite of these hostile days and in face of at least a little bit of fear, Elijah apparently doesn't disobey at all. In fact, he doesn't even hesitate to obey. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, go present yourself. And the very next phrase is, so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Oh, that God may give us those same kind of obedient hearts where we don't wrestle with him, where we don't doubt him, where we don't kind of test it, where we don't wait. But when God says, do this, we do it. When God says, go there, we go there. And when God says, say this, we say that. Or no, we say this, but we don't say that. You know what I'm saying. Cut myself there. This is what the Lord is looking for. He's looking for men and women, boys and girls, who will not hesitate to obey his commands. We come immediately, though, to two comparisons. The first comparison is between two men that are cut from a different cloth. Two men that are cut from a different cloth. As I said, before it rains, there's a story to tell. And it begins with this king, Ahab, and his household manager, Obadiah. I don't think you could find two different men uh, put side by side. Things were getting really bleak in Ahab's household. And so he decided that he needed to take matters into his own hand. He and Obadiah would set off in different directions and scatter all across the kingdom of Samaria and uh, Israel and see if they might find water somewhere. Ahab is clearly worried about himself. He's not worried about anybody else. He's worried about himself. His animals are dying. His animals are facing starvation. His animals don't have any grass to eat. And it's difficult to think anything um, good of Ahab in this situation. There's no reason to believe that he was thinking of his subject. His interests were clearly himself and his animals. And it's fascinating to me that in this time of famine, which was clearly known and seen to be the hand of God because it was the result of the word of God, Ahab is concerned about grass. He's not concerned about repenting. He's not uh, thinking about, well, why did this come about? Or God said that this would happen, and now it's here, and I ought to repent. He was totally unrepentant. He was so, totally hard of heart. His heart had not moved one iota from his stubbornness to sin to pursuing God. Unlike his forefather, David, who you might remember once numbered the people of Israel. A fascinating story in itself in Kings and Chronicle. And he sinned in doing so. And as a result, God sent a plague upon the people of Israel. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 17, David is now responding to God after this plague has struck. He says, wasn't I 
who gave the command to number the people? And isn't it I who sinned and did this great evil? But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O my Lord God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let this plague be on your people. There was none of that in Ahab's response. He didn't give a wit about God's people. Loved ones, doesn't this describe so many people around us today? Struck by all kinds of tragedy or struck by all kinds of difficulty or aware that the hand of God is against them and yet they refuse to turn to God and repent of their sinfulness and rather pursue trivial things. And then there's Obadiah. Obadiah, his name means servant of the Lord. And he was just that. In these couple verses, we get just a, an amazing glimpse into this man, Obadiah. And Obadiah, like Elijah, just seems to show up out of nowhere. All of a sudden, we find him in Ahab's course and court. And like Elijah, he's going to disappear as quickly off the scene as he shows up on the scene. But there's three things I want to point out about um, uh, Obadiah. First is his position. It says that he was the manager, get this, of Ahab's household. He was in charge of Ahab's household. Like Joseph, he was second only to the king. He was in charge of his household. That's considerable responsibility, even under good circumstances. He had to manage the affairs of house. He had to welcome guests and arrange for their food. He had to manage the kingdom. He had to manage the king's servant. As, a, as I said, under good circumstances, this would have been a difficult thing. But now we're in three years of famine. And he wasn't just in charge. Uh, he managed all the affairs of this city or of, the, of this particular palace. And as I thought about that and as I'm working that through still in my head, is it possible, loved ones, for you, because I don't place myself in the same position as you, for you to be working and living in the world and not conform to the ways of the world? Is it possible to serve God anywhere and not conform? Well, the scripture seems to say yes. In Philippians, we hear of those who were serving in Caesar's household. The Caesars were some of the most ungodly rulers that this world has ever known. We have Esther, who was serving as queen in Xerxes' household. We have Nehemiah, who was serving as cupbearer in Artaxerxes' household. We have Daniel, who was serving under Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. We have Joseph, who served in Potiphar's house and was over his whole house except for his wife. We have Joseph, who then was in Pharaoh's court and was second only to Pharaoh. We have a young captive girl, a little girl, who was serving in Naam's, Na Naaman's house. We have Joseph, who was a secret disciple amongst the leaders of the Sanhedrin. It is possible to serve God and not conform to the world around. I sometimes wonder if it's easier to stand for God publicly because that's what's expected of me. I can do this. I do this every Sunday because this is what people expect of me to do. They expect me to say the things that I say. Well, most of the things that I say. But I think those of you who serve behind enemy lines, 
Those of you who serve every day in the trenches, those of you who go to school in ungodly environments, those of you who work in places where the name of God is blasphemed every day, those of you who sit under teachers who instruct you that there is no God, that there is no creator, that there is no reason to trust in anything other than science, those of you who live and work in environments where it's almost expected that you will bend the rules, I think have a much more difficult time not conforming than I ever will. There may be a day when pastors will be silenced, but it's men and women, boys and girls like you, who are out in the world every single day who will be God's visible and invisible servants. And it's God who will give you favor in order that you might serve in some of the most unlikely and some of the most ungodly places. One of the things I am thankful for is the fact that I know, and you tell me so, that many of you pray for the leadership of this church, and particularly for the pastors and directors here, and I am so thankful for that. But I would encourage you to look at the people around you, if you know their names, to think about where they work, where they go to school, the home environments they live in, and say, you know what, I'm going to commit them to prayer. I'm going to commit them to prayer because I know the hostile environment in which they live, in which they work, in which they go to school. And the pressures that they face every single day to conform. And I know it's possible that they not conform. And so I'm going to pray that God will strengthen them and give them favor. It is possible, is it not, to be in the world and not sin? Didn't Jesus pray, Father? I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Wasn't it Paul who wrote to the Philippian believers? He wanted them to live in such a way that they might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, amidst who they shine as lights, holding fast to the word of God. Paul assumes that it can be done. Doesn't say it's easy, because they live in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, but he says they can shine as lights and hold forth the word of God. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Jesus said, be salt and light in the world amongst us. And so we find his position. One who is in the middle of the court of Ahab in charge of Ahab's palace. And then we see something of his character. It tells us that. It says that he feared the Lord. And it, it, just to make sure that we understood the extent to it, it says he feared the Lord greatly. I don't know if we talk about fear of the Lord enough. I, I think it ought to be part of our regular conversation. It ought to be something that we think about often in our lives. Here was one of God's servants at the epicenter of an evil king and his kingdom serving in his palace. And we wonder, is it possible to fear the Lord? Is it possible to stand for Jesus in that particular setting? After all, prophets are dying. Prophets are hiding. As all a result of this palace's policies and this queen's intent to rub off the face of the earth anybody who serves God. This is no time to fear the Lord after all. This is the time to go underground and this is the time to go silent and just get by. Yet over Ahab's household, God had placed his invisible servant. Again, I ask you, would you rather be in Elijah's shoes hiding in the desert or in Zarephath 
Or would you rather be in Obadiah's shoes, serving in the midst of a little antichrist? I think it's important that we think about the fear of God. And just to jog your minds just a little bit. To fear the Lord means that above everything else, above anyone else, God comes first. What matters most in your life, in my life, is God. That we worship him alone. That we obey him alone. That we understand that it's his word that trumps everything in our lives. And it is something that you and I need to cultivate. It's something that we need to recognize. We will never, ever fully achieve this side of heaven. We will always be able to grow in what it means to fear the Lord. How do we grow in fearing the Lord? Or where does fear of the Lord come from? The, one of the primary places in which the fear of the Lord comes from is hearing and reading the Word of God. That, that should just trigger all kinds of things in our minds. One of the fascinating texts of the Bible for so many reasons is Deuteronomy chapter 17 where God ahead of time prepares Israel for what a king would be like should they choose a king. And it says that one of the responsibilities of the king is he is to write out by hand his own um, copy of the law which is basically Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then he is to read that um, copy every day so that he might learn the fear of the Lord. We learn the fear of the Lord by hearing and reading the word of God. What do we read to our children? Is, is church important to them? Is, is Sunday school? Is youth group? Is uh, coming under the preaching of God's word important to them? Is it good to talk about the word of God? Is it good to hear the word of God? Is it good to sing the word of God? Absolutely. Because it's through hearing the word of God and through reading the word of God that we become acquainted with the fear of the Lord. But the Bible also tells us that the fear of the Lord is something that we choose. That we choose to walk in the fear of the Lord or to walk out of the fear of the Lord. The Bible also tells us that the fear of the Lord is something that we are taught as the ways of God are explained to us so we understand them. The fear of the Lord, its opposite is to hate evil. And the Bible says very clearly, to hate evil is the fear of the Lord. If we live on the fence, if we play in both ballparks, then we're having trouble understanding what it means to fear the Lord. We're to value the fear of the Lord. As I thought about the fear of the Lord, um, I, I wrote down in my notes, to, to fear God means that we believe he is sovereign over even morality. God is sovereign over everything, loved ones. And we need to think about the fact that God is sovereign even over morality. In other words, God sets the boundaries for our lives. God sets the path for which we are to walk. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so as we think about what it means to fear the Lord, we think about somebody like Obadiah. And just so we understand a little bit about Obadiah's life, when he talks to Elijah, do you notice what he says to Elijah in that conversation? He says, I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. I, I can see a few young people here. I think the most important thing for you to ever do is settle your relationship with the Lord while you're young. To establish patterns of walking in God's ways while you're young. To not say, well, I'm going to live a little bit. I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to play in the world just a little bit. And then I will maybe choose God's ways. That is just a disastrous, illogical way to think. And one of the best things you can do is heed the, um, the words even of uh, Obadiah here that I have feared the Lord from my youth. Determine now that you will learn and walk in the ways of the Lord. 
We read that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly and yet he lived in Ahab's palace. He lived in the heart of evil. He lived at the headquarters of Baal worship. And in the midst of all that, he didn't bow the knee. He lived in this atmosphere of jealousy and lust and, uh, and, and spite, and yet he kept his faith. Faith. He was a consistent presence of a God-fearing man in this evil court of, God, of King Ahab. And his presence and his sustaining preservation by God in the court of Ahab was no less a miracle than God providing food and sustenance for Elijah in Zarephath. God's hand was upon him, keeping him safe and pure. Isn't that what we read in Proverbs 16, 17? The eyes, or when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Isn't it what we read from time to time as we close our services about Jude? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Doesn't it help us to think about Revelation chapter 3 when Jesus speaks to that church and he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Loved ones, God is not taken surprised by the biology class that you're attending at university. God is not taken by surprise about the work environment that he has given you a job in and where you're working and the circumstances which you find yourself in. God is not taken by surprise by the family that you find yourself growing up in or living in. And if God is able to keep his servant, Obadiah, pure and safe without any compromise in Ahab's course, court, God can keep you pure and safe without any compromise in the place that you find yourself when you leave this building today. Because as we read, with God, nothing is impossible. God is able to keep us falling. That's why Paul could write, do not be conformed to this world. Beloved, God will keep you from the evil one. And so go from here when you go and live as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Be salt and light and don't worry. Fear the Lord and trust God to preserve you. But it's not all good news. I don't know if you saw the diversity in this text. These, these texts just, they, they, they stretch my thinking in so many different ways. Don't ever think that you ought to be like the person beside you or the person in front of you or the person behind you, that God has made a mistake with who you are and where you are and what he's called you to do. Notice in this text, there's Elijah. God has his plan for Elijah. He's protected or preserved in a brook and then he's hidden in Zarephath. God had his plan for Obadiah. Obadiah is protected in Ahab's court. God has his plan for a hundred prophets who have been taken by Obadiah and hidden in some caves somewhere. And God had his plan for the hundreds of prophets that were butchered by Jezebel. God's way with you might not be the same as God's way with me, might not be the same as God's way with the person beside you. But that does not mean at all that God is not sovereign. And we ought to have the, uh, the words of Jesus ringing in our ears that he spoke to Peter when Peter was concerned about what would happen with John. And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. I don't know what God has in store for any of us here today, wherever we serve. But I do know what his desire is for each of us is that we individually would follow him. Finally, notice his actions. We've got his position. He was in Ahab's court. We've got his character. He feared the Lord. And then there's his actions. 
He says to, to um, uh, Elijah, when Jezebel cut off, now understand that word cut off means butchered or killed. It doesn't mean she cut them off from food and supplies. It means she killed them. When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. While Jezebel was butchering the prophets of God, Obadiah was hiding as many as he could. Ahab was thinking only of himself. Obadiah was thinking of others at great risk to his own life. And he continued taking that risk by supplying them regularly with bread and with water. The fear of the Lord had taught him not to fear those who can kill body and, uh, but cannot kill, or his fear of the Lord had taught him not to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Obadiah lived in fear of him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think Obadiah also anticipated the words of Jesus, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You might have picked up the diversity here again of God's provision. A little bit earlier, God had used ravens to bring bread and meat. Then God had miraculously commanded a widow to provide for Elijah for the next number of years. And now God uses the ordinary means of Obadiah, who is in charge of the palace and all its food sources and water sources, to feed his own prophets that are in hiding. Loved ones, God is never at a loss to meet your need. He's never at a loss to come up with some way, some creative, some imaginable way. Isn't it, um, uh, wasn't it that prayer in the end of Ephesians? Um, God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. God can meet your need. And understand sometimes that God may want you to, the me to be the means through which the needs of his servants are met. Then we have this next contrast, which is between Elijah and Obadiah, two of God's servants, but this time they are cut from the same cloth. They are cut from the same cloth. I think it's sad when commentators put Elijah and Obadiah up against each other. They're not meant to be seen in contrast like one is good and one is bad. Rather, I think they present us with an amazing contrast with the way that God is with his servants. There may be times when God commands us to hide and there may be times when God puts us right in harm's way. Neither is wrong. Both of them are up to the sovereign will of God and what he chooses for our lives and the lives of those around us. Elijah was, or Obadiah was surprised to meet Elijah. After all, he'd been hiding for a number of years, it appears. And all of a sudden it says, behold, out of nowhere it seems, look, there he is, there's Elijah. Finding Obadiah as he's searching for grass. He's the last person that Obadiah ever expected to find. And these few words tell us how bad things really were. They were bad for the prophets of God because some, as I've already said, had been slaughtered and others were in hiding. They were bad for the nations because Ahab had made all the nations around Israel sign a covenant with him that Elijah was nowhere to be found in their land. These times were bad for the cattle because they had no grass and were in danger of dying if not many had not already died. And they were bad times and difficult times for God's servant Obadiah because he was really one step, one act, one, um, uh, one uh, decision away from being found out and being faced with difficulty in front of the king and the queen. Elijah and Obadiah couldn't have been any different and yet they were cut from the same cloth. Elijah was bold and confrontational and intrusive 
He's a front end kind of man. He's the guy that's the thin end of the wedge. Obadiah was hesitant, cautious, fearful. He's the kind of behind the scenes kind of guy. The kind of guy that nobody really knows about but served God so faithfully in the background. There isn't even a hint in this text that Obadiah is a conformist. Not a hint that he compromised in any way in his service to the king. I think he understood that his life was lived on a razor's edge every single moment of every single day. It was a life lived literally between happiness and disaster. And when Elijah tells him to go and talk to Ahab, this was not something to be taken lightly. In fact, I think it's a little like the position that Mordecai had put Esther in when he tells him, you got to go talk to the king about this edict. And remember what Esther said to him? All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if, I, if any man or woman gets to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to the king to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Obadiah wasn't a hypochondriac. He was just a realist. He understood the hatred that Ahab had towards Elijah. He understood the fact that Elijah had disappeared off the face of the earth, so to speak, for the last three and a half years. And he knew that that could possibly happen again. And so he wasn't afraid to die. He just didn't want to be set up to die. And so Elijah gave him the assurance as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. I will surely show myself to him today. And Obadiah agreed. Loved ones, I am very much aware that throughout the week, God's servants are everywhere. That as you scatter, you are in schools, you are in workplaces, you are in neighborhoods. You are traveling to different parts of the world. And I want you to hear again today that God's faithful servants come in all sizes and shapes, old and young, male and female. And while we are cut from the same cloth, we are sons and daughters of God through Christ Jesus, there is not a single mold into which all of us should try and fit. But there is a single motto to which all of us should adhere. We walk in the fear of the Lord. How helpful it is then to read this text and understand that Elijah wasn't God's only faithful servant. That faithfulness is not so dull as it only comes in one flavor. Look around you and every single one of you who is a child of God is a different flavor and a different favorite faithful servant of the Lord. As one wrote, you're not called to great works but to good works. Not to flamboyant ministry, but to faithful ministry. Not to be dashing, but only a devoted servant. Elijah and Obadiah, two faithful and different servants. The servants of the real God are so diverse. In these texts, we are getting an incredible picture of God. We see his sovereign rule over creation. We see his sovereign rule over morality. We see his sovereign rule over his servants. And as we come to the Lord's table, we see his sovereign rule even over the death of his son, Jesus Christ. As Peter stood before the crowd of 
Jews who he had been preaching to, he began to close his sermon with these words, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We have been saved by God's most faithful servant, Jesus Christ. And God's path for Jesus was to become our substitute, to bear the weight of our sin on his shoulder, to shoulder the curse that was meant for us upon himself, to give his life for our life, to have his blood poured out instead of our blood poured out. That's what this table is about. It's about us worshiping God for his sovereign way in this world, for his incredible plan of salvation through his faithful servant, Jesus Christ. If you know Christ as your Savior today, participate with us. And do so with a couple things in mind if I can maybe encourage your thinking. One is just rejoice. Be thankful for God's faithful servant, Jesus Christ. And then secondly, rejoice and be thankful that God will be faithful to you as you leave here and serve him wherever he might send you this week. Our God and Father, we do come to you today and we're thankful for your word and uh, for the way in which your word continues to reveal your greatness, your power, your might, the diversity of your ways in our life, for the encouragement that I find in it, Father, every day, for the way that it teaches me to fear you, and to walk in that fear. Father, I pray that as your people, as everyone in this building uh, this morning has had an opportunity to hear your word in song, to hear your word in prayer, to hear your word read, to hear your word proclaimed, that if there's anyone here like Ahab, fixed in the hardness of their hearts and the sinfulness of their ways, Father, I pray that they would not end this day like Ahab, thinking only of themselves, but that you would bring them to repentance and weeping like you did David, and that they might find forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.